Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about immigration. Now, I have a guest, and before I introduce my guest, I want to say why this is a to- an important topic for a lot of Christians. It's important because there is a strong motif throughout the Bible that stands up against empire and as well stands up for the stranger or the foreigner, or the sojourner, old, old translations say the word alien, that is among among them. And so there's like this Christian moral case to be made for openness to allowing people in your midst who are on the margins or who simply just want to take charge of their own lives and move, move somewhere else. Um, there's an openness to also things like free trade and a welcoming attitude, I, I guess would be the best way to put it, toward, you know, the immigrant and the refugee. Lately, uh, it's been pretty common to hear Christians argue against immigration. I have several friends on Facebook who are very much against the immigrants uh, who want to come here, and all of their arguments are not really related to biblical principles. And so we need to arm ourselves with uh, arguments that aren't really from the Bible because they're not going to stick with the people who aren't kind of going to the Bible to, to use those. So I have I have uh, Jason Brennan on with us to talk about his book, In Defense of Openness. And I really like the title because the idea of being open, whether it's open borders, open trade, those kinds of things, Jason does this superbly. Uh, he is one of the co-authors of the book. And uh, I think it's one of the most superb books I've read on immigration. And I've read quite a few in the last decade. So, Jason, uh, thanks for thanks for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The opening line in your book is, in 2016, xenophobia had a triumphant year. Can you explain to us why that was a big year for xenophobia? The interesting thing about 2016 um, was that even though there are all sorts of things being debated in the election and people are taking stances that often took the form of A versus not A, you found that both people on the right and the left were pushing an anti-immigration line. So Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were both, both of them are pushing the line that immigrants are bad for the country and they're especially bad for, say, the poor, for their voting base, and that we have to sort of keep them out in order to protect ourselves. And then in response to that, even someone like Hillary Clinton, who had taken a more moderate stance, started pushing back against immigration. Um, and that wasn't just in the U.S. Uh, throughout the whole world, you see this kind of reaction to uh, to immigration. So a number of right wing parties, uh, like far right wing parties, uh, rose to prominence around Europe and started getting seats because of an anti-immigrant backlash. Um, you started seeing people on the left pushing this line as well. Of course, the Brexit vote took place, um, which is in part very heavily fueled by an anti-immigration sentiment, though it wasn't only that. And so uh, I think there's there's a strong distrust of immigrants and immigration throughout the world right now. Yeah, you know, it's funny. During the uh, 2016 election, I believe uh, there was this like right wing 
uh, article written about Hillary Clinton and how she like secretly wants to have open borders. And uh, I don't know if it was you or someone else who was like, wow, if only they knew the libertarians would probably vote for her if, if she made this more public or something like that, um, <laughs> because <laughs> that's something more that, that we would want. Yeah. Uh, out there. Um, you know, it's funny. I actually bought your book thinking it was uh, about immigration totally. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't even realize it until I was in like the third chapter. And I'm like, oh, you're going to talk about more things. So the, the premise of your book is about ending poverty and achieving global justice. Yes. So um, I love your I love your confident attitude in the book uh, for a number of reasons. One, it just it's just like, nope, these arguments are, are, are really, really important. Uh, what we propose in this book has far more potential to cure global poverty than any of the policies typical uh, philosophers of global justice advocate. So what is the typical global justice advocate saying out there in articles, books, et cetera? Yeah, I, I don't want to be uncharitable to them, but it's hard not to be. Uh, there's this weird thing that happens with the the people who decide to write about global justice and philosophy departments just don't seem to have access to economics books. Uh, or if they do, they only read Marx. They don't read mainstream economics or something like that. Hmm. Because it's weird. You, you go over to the economics department and you ask them, what makes countries rich? What makes countries poor? And uh, how well does international aid work? Ask them that question. Now, keep in mind, like the typical Democrats, not, I'm sorry, the typical uh, economist is not a libertarian. They're like a moderate Democrat. Mm-hmm. But you ask those people what they think and they say, oh, well, what you need is strong protection of private property. You need free trade and free like overall, mostly free markets. You need to have like a relatively inclusive political system that protects the rule of law. That's what causes prosperity. And international aid, it can be a band-aid, but it doesn't really do much and has very little chance of curing world poverty. That's what economists say. Like if you read like Why Nations Fail, which is by Darren, I can never say his name right, Achumalu, I think is the way you pronounce it, and uh, James Robinson, like that's what they argue, right? So then you walk over to the uh, philosophy department and you ask them, well, what should we do about the problems of world poverty? And they say the opposite of everything the economists just said. (laughs) And it's not like they read the economists carefully and found holes in their empirical arguments. Um, it's not even that they're so much thinking, well, the economists have this argument that this would work, but we want to override it for moral reasons. It's just, they're completely unaware of it. Uh, it's like, they just don't know anything. So they end up arguing for the exact opposite of what economists advocate. They, they think that we should focus our energy on the things economists say won't work and, uh, instead do the things that they, (laughs) so I don't know why they're like that, but it's, it's disturbing. And I honestly, I worry that it's just, People get into global justice not because they're really concerned about poverty, but because they just hate markets and capitalism, and this is a way of complaining about them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've I've often wondered why when I bring up economics and like arguments on Facebook that sort of point to the same conclusions that you know we'll probably talk about here in a few minutes. It, it, people are just they they seem very skeptical of economics. I don't know if it's they think that you know there's some sort of conspiracy by rich wealthy. Republicans to like make sure economics is all about, you know, their wealth as opposed to, you know, global wealth. But uh, yeah, you know, the the typical economist as a moderate Democrat is something I think a lot of people don't actually know. And that, you know, I had Art Cardin told me once that, you know, on on the grand scheme of things, in terms of all the philosophy of ideas, even he and Paul Krugman are pretty closely aligned, even though Art Cardin's an Austrian uh, and Paul Krugman is probably the very opposite of that. And in terms of like arguing for free trade. Yeah, well, Paul Krugman won the Nobel Prize for his defense of free trade. I mean, he's the one who's helped boost our understanding of free trade more than anybody since Ricardo. Yeah, that's he. He didn't win it for writing uh, pro Democrat uh, <laughs> op eds in the New York Times. He wrote it right. for his stuff work beforehand. 
Yeah. Well, we'll talk about um, we'll talk about free trade here uh, later. But I do want to talk uh, first about some immigration. So you're you're a libertarian. I mean, you've you've worked with uh, institutions like the Cato Institute. You've published a book on what everyone needs to know about libertarianism. I mean, it's very clear that anybody interacts with you. You're pretty libertarian. Uh, But is this a libertarian book itself or is it going to appeal to a larger audience? You know, I, I certainly think this is the position that libertarians are kind of required to take given their commitments, but I don't, I don't try to write libertarian books. I, I wrote a book called Libertarians and what everyone needs to know because I was given the opportunity to do it and why not. But, um, I think of this as just, this is the position you should defend regardless of whether you're a social Democrat an egalitarian, um, a left liberal, uh, a utilitarian, well, it doesn't really matter what your background ideology is. I don't, I think this is something that libertarians are committed to, but I think other people should be committed to it as well. I simply think of it as – so no, I, I suppose I don't think of it as a libertarian book. I just think it's the correct view of global justice, which can be inserted into other theories. And you don't you don't depend on the reader embracing libertarian principles in order to convince them of your position. No, not at all. And um, I don't base any of it on, say, he- like Austrian economics, which is libertarians love. It's very uh, heterodox. I'm just relying upon mainstream neoclassical economic research, um, you know, mainstream work in institutional economics, uh, uh, common sense moral principles that lots of people agree to. I, d- I really don't think of it as a book defending libertarianism or def- based upon libertarian ideas. One of the things I noticed as a kind of a personal experience reading your book, and I think this was what I experienced in reading one of your previous books and some other books by philosophers, is that you engage in people's arguments and you you, you bring up a certain person uh, and you say, well, they argue for X and let's let's just assume that they're right about X. Uh, but even this is wrong. And there's this like, <laughs> like you literally say things like, yeah, but this is wrong. Is that just typical in philosophy books? Yeah, I think that's how you do it. You, uh, what you try to do is when you're thinking about a position, you're trying to find the best argument you can for that position. And then you start asking things like, well, if these premises were true, would it actually lead to their conclusion? Would it have implications that they're not prepared to embrace? Um, and then finally, are the premises actually true? And so what I try to do is I, I try to go up with uh, what I think are the common concerns of the average layperson when they think about this issue, plus what I think are the best intellectual defenses of the other side. And yeah. so if you can break those down and respond to them, then you're starting to make a case for your position. So the book is largely about immigration and free trade. Uh, and so the word openness is very uh, apropos there. So what what would you say the ba- the elevator basic prem- elevator pitch, basic premise of what book what you've written here? What would it be? I'd say that uh, when we look at the inequality around the world, I'm not really concerned about inequality per se, but the fact that there's inequality shows that it's possible for some people to be rich. We've, we're in the position of escaping extreme poverty uh, for the first time in history. 95% of people lived in extreme poverty in 1900, and now in 2018, we're down to 9%. It's amazing. But how do we get everyone else lifted up out of extreme poverty? How do we get them lifted up into middle class incomes? That's really important. And it turns out that the best answer for that is not taking the wealth of the of the West and trying to transfer it to the rest. It's to have an open world where people are free to move wherever they like to, wherever they can get a job, where goods and services are able to cross borders, where people are able to cross borders. An open world is a wealthy world, is a, is a better world. Yeah. Uh, well, I, at LCI, we heartily agree with that premise, of course, uh, and you're right that libertarians would largely, largely agree with that, um, and I would say are kind of, kind of required to, 
to deal with, to agree with that. Um, but you know, the term "open borders" has become sort of a like a bad word in some libertarian circles, uh, where the the openness attitude. See, I like to think of it in terms of openness because I want more people to be like, sure, come on over. Uh, and, and therefore we'll eventually, I hope, get the kind of more of a gate rather than a, than a fence. But what, what is often meant by open borders? I mean, I'm guessing you oft, often use that term, but what does it mean? Does it mean no borders? Does it mean that we just abolish geopolitical boundaries? How would you describe that in terms of defending the position of immigration? Yeah, the open borders position doesn't require you to say that we should eliminate nation states or eliminate governments. Um, you know, it's not a it's not an anarchist position, though an anarchist is free to embrace it. It's the view that moving from one country to another should be as easy as it is to move from, say, Maryland to Virginia. That I should be able to move to Canada as easily as I can move to Maryland. That someone from Canada should be able to move to the United States as easily as they can move from, say, Ontario to Manitoba, um, or that you can move between cities. It would mean that. If you can, if someone offers you a job anywhere in the world, you can take it. And the fact that you live in another country or a citizen of another country doesn't really matter. Now, there's some complicated questions which you don't really have to answer as an open borders person because you can go, you can go in multiple different directions. But there are questions about at what point when you move to a new place do you acquire voting rights if it's democratic? There's a question about what does it take to become a citizen. So an open borders person doesn't have to say that as soon as you move from one country to another, you're automatically a citizen with full voting rights and a full entitlement to whatever welfare programs or social services the government provides. It's really just the position that you're free to live wherever anyone will sell you a house or rent you an apartment or rent you a house, and you're free to take a job wherever anyone will give it to you, and you're free to start a business um, in any country in the same way that people in that country could start a business. What are some of the objections to that position by people who are like, yeah, I kind of like that in principle, but where, where do they go? Yeah, so uh, there are a number of moral and economic arguments that lay people make against this. Um, and we, we basically list them all in the book and try to go through them all carefully. But one thing that people worry about is they think that immigrants will cause an influx of crime. That some other people worry that um, immigrants will bring with them dysfunctional culture or, or they'll sort of bring with them an insistence on living under bad institutions and they'll undermine the culture and the institutions in the country they move to. People worry that immigrants will radically depress wages and cause poverty. They worry that immigrants will consume welfare services and social services and thus bankrupt the country to which they move. Um, they worry that we simply have the right to exclude them just for the heck of it in the same way. So an analogy that you often hear people make, especially the, the so-called libertarians who are opposed to immigration, is they'll say something like this. Well, you, Jason Brennan, have extra rooms in your in your house, and it's not like people – you just allow anyone who wants to come sit in them to come live there. Uh, you, you would kick Rwandans or Haitians off your property if they just showed up and started camping out. Well, in the same way that you have a right to exclude people from your property, so a country has the right to exclude people from the country. Uh, it doesn't even matter if there's a reason to do it. They can just do it because they feel like it. So those are some of the arguments, and there's a few others, but I think those are the basic ones you hear. What is your, what is your typical response to that argument? That the, It's basically the, pre, the property, property rights argument in sort of scaled up and I'm guessing misapplied. Oh, yeah. I think it's a radical mis, uh, misapplication. So uh, you can kind of see it by parodying it with other versions. So suppose someone said, look, it's my prerogative to just not date black women if I don't want to. You know, I can just decide not to do that. And, you know, it's, it's within my rights. Even if it's racist, it's within my rights to act that way. Well, similarly, therefore, the country can just decide to pass a rule that white guys can't date black women. And you'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on there. When you see it, when you do that analogy, you realize, no, 
you having control over yourself is not the same thing as the collective making a collective decision about what other people would do. When the If the country says a white guy can't date a black woman, they're interfering with you and your personal freedom and your rights. So if I say I'm not going to let any Haitian people um, you know, rent my extra bedroom in my house, that's me deciding what to do with my property. If the rest of you say we're going to vote and say that no one is allowed to rent um, the extra bedrooms in their house to Haitians, that's you deciding what others will do with their property. It's it's interference of the collective with individuals. A nation, it, it's really a violation of property rights. A, a nation is not a house, right? So if you just think of like a small neighborhood with like ten people, and you say, all right. Uh, one person in the neighborhood would like to rent his house to people from Canada, and the other nine people say, well, we voted and said that you can't do that. They're interfering with his property, right? They're for preventing him from making a mutually beneficial exchange with a Canadian person. They're hurting the Canadian and they're hurting him. Okay, so the one one argument that I kind of struggled to answer for a friend, I mean, this was probably a few years ago, actually, when Obama was president, and we were kind of arguing about this, and he's, he's a conservative Republican, uh, pretty proudly so, and he's a really smart guy, but he saw... The oh, I was during the refugee crisis um, in in Syria, and I was you know kind of in favor of uh, Obama's welcoming attitude. I don't remember actually the specifics about how he handled that, but that's kind of neither here nor there in this conversation. The, the my friend basically said to me, "You don't have a right to allow." Potent, all this, all these risky people, uh, basically, to come in because I have an obligation to protect my children. I have an obligation to protect my family, and it puts us at risk because we don't know, uh, you know, how how things are going to turn out. And therefore, you, as sort of, even if you're a private property owner and you want to welcome them in, let's say, my extra bedroom, you know, and house refugees, uh, that puts my family or maybe your neighbors in danger. And so it's yeah. sort of like I guess it's like a negative. He's like strongly against negative externalities that he uh, supposedly knew would happen. Yeah, that's good. So two points on that. One is um, I think when we talk about refugees, uh, we're often sort of missing the point of what open borders is about. Refugees are a special case because you're talking about people that have suffered economic devastation and are coming to a home country, another country, really in a sense asking for charity, asking for special assistance in being provided housing and clothing and other sorts of things. So they are, in a sense, a welfare problem. Um, whereas when we're talking about open borders in general, we're just talking about can people, can someone from Haiti just take a job in the US? Can someone from France just take a job in Japan without having to get permission? So we're often thinking about looking at economic migration rather than migration as a result of being a refugee. So somebody think, could be open borders, but be very cautious about the refugee situation. Yeah, because the refugee question, is, it's not just I'm going to move here and take a job, but it's I'm moving here and asking for special, um, some sort of special welfare package from the government that's going to be tax financed. So it's I'm not I'm not taking a stance either way, but I just want to know that that is a special case. And okay. when open, open borders is not fundamentally about refugees. But that said, um, suppose he just said, well, forget about the refugees. I just want to talk about people from uh, from Syria. I think that a lot of them are criminals and they shouldn't be allowed to move to the United States because they're going to be dangerous to us. So there's a there's a moral question here and then there's an empirical question. The empirical question is how criminal are migrants? And the funny thing is, even though people tend to assume that migrants are really dangerous and very criminal, there's actually a large range of studies, empirical studies on the criminality of immigrants being conducted by a wide range of different economists with different background ideologies. And the studies pretty much universally find that most immigrants from most immigrant groups are far less criminal than domestic born 
uh, U.S. citizens of third generation or higher. Uh, so the problem with Mexican immigrants is that after they've been here for three, uh, two or three generations, they become just as bad as Americans. They commit, they commit crime at a much lower rate. They commit property crimes at a lower rate. They commit murder at a lower rate and so on. And it, it doesn't really seem to matter which particular place they're coming from. They commit it at a lower rate. Um, so it just seems like the facts are generally wrong. Uh, that said, like if you knew a particular person, like we have evidence that this particular individual is really dangerous, then okay, fine, worry about that individual. But we're not, when we're talking about people in general, in fact, immigrants are commit crime at a lower rate than everyone else. And part of the reason for that is that immigration is hard, uh, and it's it would be easier under the other, a new system, and maybe it would change a little bit if we were more open border. But moving from one place to another, even inside of a country. Like even just within the United States, moving from one spot to another takes a high level of conscientiousness. It takes a lot of wherewithal. It takes perseverance. It takes certain kinds of psychological traits which go against criminality. The thing about criminals is that they tend to stay put. So even inside of a single country, the people who migrate around tend to be the more desirable type people. You know, It's the people that don't move you should be worried about. But let's just say that's all wrong, even though that's what the facts say. That's what the studies say. Suppose that weren't the case. Um, there's another worry I have about this, which is it seems to prove too much. So here's some possible implications of this. If I said, I have a right to be protected from neighbors moving in who are dangerous, then that would seem to suggest the following. Imagine that uh, Ward 8 in Washington, D.C. I work in D.C. Ward 8 is the poorest uh, section of Washington, D.C. It's the most criminal section. Um, it has a very large number of um, of people who have warrants out. It has the highest crime rate and so on in the city, at least the last time I looked. So suppose that uh, things are starting to change in D.C. and there's like kind of an economic depression within the city, but the suburbs are booming. And so then the people in Ward 8 start trying to move to Maryland and uh, Virginia. And then I said, oh, no, uh, Virginia shouldn't allow all those people to move out of Washington, D.C. into my neighborhood because, after all, I live in a very safe neighborhood with very low crime rates. And if criminals like that move into this neighborhood, that's really bad for me. Now, if I said that, people would be like, oh, you're incredibly racist and you don't have any such right to forbid other people from moving in as your neighbors, even though the facts are – in this case, the facts are correct, that the, that the people living in Ward 8 are on average more criminal than the people that live in my neighborhood in northern Virginia. That's true. So what the interesting thing about that is no one would, is willing to restrict internal migration within a country or even within a city on the basis of criminality. But then as soon as the migration crosses a national border, suddenly criminality becomes a reason to restrict migration. So that means that they have some other reason to think that national borders are special in a way that internal borders are not. And you'd ask them, well, what's that reason? Huh. You know, I think I have possibly an answer for why people would would uh, do that. And one might be in your, your example there of the Ward 8 people moving into uh, other areas is that I can imagine my friend thinking – well, but they're Americans and they are exemplifying the American spirit of picking themselves up by their bootstraps and they're moving and making themselves a better life. And mm -hmm. so therefore we should applaud that because look at them, they're, they're, they're trying to make their lives better, which I realize is, of course, exactly what migrants from outside the country are doing. But it's more like, oh, but they're already Americans and they're just, you know, kind of uh, fulfilling their American destiny. Yeah, that's the best that's answer right. I could come up with on their behalf. <laughs> Well, you're right. And people, that's actually what they're going to say. Well, there is a difference because they're Americans and you're like, fine, I understand that that's the, that's what you think is the difference. But what I want, I need to know is why does that make a difference? Why yeah. is it that, you know, uh, New Hampshire, if a bunch of uh, people from West Virginia moved to New Hampshire, then New Hampshire would have a higher crime rate and a higher poverty, poverty rate. Uh, that's not a reason to forbid 
uh, immigration from um, West Virginia to New Hampshire? Why is it then a reason to forbid immigration from, say, Haiti to New Hampshire? Yeah. By the way, with that example, I, I like to use this example in my classes. I say, so you know, people often imagine that if you had open borders, that you'd be swamped by the poor immigrants overnight. But they don't realize that there already are other internal mechanisms, like from the market, that tend to restrict and control immigration because of incentives. So an analogy I use in class is I'll I'll write up some statistics about where I live. I say I live in a particular neighborhood in Northern Virginia that's doing quite well, where eighty five percent of the people have at least. Um, Let's like a two-year associate's degree, uh, something like like seventy-five to eighty percent of them have a bachelor's degree. The overwhelming majority of them have um, a master's degree. Median household income is around two hundred thousand uh, dollars. The teen pregnancy rate is basically nothing. Like the drug use rate is basically nothing. The crime rate is nothing, et cetera, et cetera. Everything, every economic indicator says that my neighborhood is doing really well. We also, however, have an open border with um, let's say Harlan County, Kentucky. So I want to make it about race. I'll pick a predominantly white area. Harlan County, Kentucky has a massive meth problem, incredibly high unemployment. Uh, the GDP per capita around there is like lower than like the monthly income around here. Um, and on every economic indicator and demographic indicator, they're doing just very badly. And we have an open border with them. So why don't all of the residents of Harlan County, Kentucky get up and move to Fairfax County, Virginia right now? And the answer is, well, there are other things that are incentivizing them to do that or not, things like the cost of living, the availability of jobs for them, and so on. So in the same way that you don't see all of the rich parts of the country being flooded with all the people from the poor parts of the country, you shouldn't expect to see um, like the rich countries immediately be flooded with all the poor people from all the poor countries. That's a really good way of illustrating why that is not a problem. I, I appreciate that a lot because it's often, you know, I know libertarians are often on the side of, well, that's just not, that's just not the facts. And then you kind of have to, you know, bear those out by explaining. But I think that analogy works pretty well. What about the, what about the sovereignty self-determination uh, aspect of, you know, our country has a right to kind of be who we are and restrict who we want and that kind of thing. Uh, th- that is a philosophical objection to open borders that you deal with in the book. That's right. Uh, there's a lot of different versions of that. And I, you know, some of them can be more sophisticated than others, but I want to go through like the most basic version. Cause I think that's the kind that like your, your listeners have probably encountered. The thought is, well, countries have a right to self-determination and that means they can set the policies within their country. That sounds right, but no one really believes it because imagine I said the following argument, well, we have the right of self-determination. So we're going to have segregation. We have the right of self-determination. So we're going to forbid, um, anything other than Catholicism. Uh, you have to be Catholic. We have a right of self-determination, so we're going to forbid you from reading the King James Bible. We have the right to self-determination, so we're going to um, require that, uh, you know, pick some other illiberal thing, whatever it might be. And everyone go, oh, well, no, no, the right of self-determination doesn't include the right to sort of interfere with people's speech. It doesn't include the right to interfere with people's other, like, freedom of religion or their freedom of association or their freedom of whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's right. So the question here is not whether countries have some degree of right of self-determination over some limited set of policies. The question is, what are the freedoms that we are entitled to as human beings, which override and come before any country's right of self-determination? Unless you are a thoroughgoing going statist, like illiberal statist, your view is that individual rights trump self-sovereignty. And so the question before us is whether the right to immigrate is an individual right or whether it's simply like a fiat that's determined by governments ad hoc. Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. 
that brought up one of the other uh, objections that's more economic is the the illiberal migration of like basically people are going to come in and they're going to all start voting for I mean this is of course a Republican sort of worried about this uh, they're all going to start voting for more welfare and they're all going to start voting for Democrats and you know of course we don't want immigrants because they come from well they come from socialist countries is kind of the idea yeah there is something to that but uh, I think if you go through the book I cite a number of studies where people try to look very carefully at the voting behaviors of immigrants um, and you know, it's surprised there's not as much of a gap between immigrant voting behavior and uh, domestic voting behavior as you might think. There's also another thing that happens, which is that when there's higher levels of immigration, uh, support for things like welfare programs goes down uh, from the from the domestic people. Uh, and part of the reason for that is that you can you can I'm not necessarily saying that's justifying it, but you can think of it like this. Um, when there's a lot of ethnic and racial and um, uh, and sort of in, in, like income and other kind and cultural homogeneity, then people tend to be really quite a bit in favor of welfare programs because they tend to assume, well, if someone's down in their luck, they're like me. And if they need welfare, they're like me and I'm a good person and don't, that we should give it to them. And when there's more diversity, people tend to be both more suspicious of welfare programs, but also there's some evidence from people like Ed Glazer, who again, you know, moderate Democrat at Harvard, not some libertarian, that um, – in fact, people are more likely to take advantage of welfare programs and free ride on them and so on. So you actually see something like increased diversity reduces the size of the welfare state. Uh, it reduces the degree to which social services are being provided by government um, rather than increases it, like all things equal. So uh, yeah, So, but the other thing you can say about that is, well, if you're really worried about swamping the welfare state, that doesn't mean you have to build a wall around the country. You could build a wall around the welfare state. So we talk about that in the book. We say, uh, you know, one proposal is, well, if the government's going to spend a certain amount of money on various kinds of social services and welfare services, it should provide them equally to all residents. And if that means if more residents come in, we just have to sort of reduce the per capita spending. Um, another possibility is you you do what some countries do, where uh, new immigrants don't have the same access or rights to kind of welfare programs as others, in part because you're worried about this very problem moral hazard of people coming to consume your services rather than to uh, make mutually beneficial trades with others. There's one final bit about this, which is the long-term versus the short-term. Uh, the economics of immigration is pretty clear that like, overall immigration is a very powerful tool for economic growth. I mean, it swamps almost everything else. We haven't even gone into the numbers, but it swamps like everything else. So in the short-term, Immigration can be dangerous in certain ways, um, perhaps for fiscal reasons. But in the long term, you get increased growth, which increases budgets, which allows them to pay for more. And maybe to illustrate this with the internal analogy just one more time, think about, um, you know, say, parts of Texas that are booming, that have all sorts of people moving in, right? Those parts of Texas, you don't look down and say, like, the Houston area or Dallas or um, – uh, Austin and other places that are seeing booms and go, oh no, all of these migrants are coming in from California. And as a result, like their infrastructure is overly used and uh, there's the, the, they can't afford to pay for schooling and so on. And it's all just being swamped and destroyed. It's, it's much better to be California with all those people leaving because you know now the schools won't have to educate as many people. And so their taxes don't have to go as far. Rather, you see that the people moving to Texas are making Texas richer and they're getting more money to pay for these things. Whereas the people leaving California and the people leaving Ohio and people leaving Illinois is leaving the tax bases weak there and they can't afford to pay for the services. So people see that in, within the U.S. They see that and they don't have a problem with it. But suddenly if you put a national border between the states, they're like, oh, no, it changes everything. <laughs> 
it's so funny to me that I, I just have to chuckle uh, at that sort of uh, way of thinking because there really is very limited reasons to kind of argue for, well, this border is more important than the border between Texas and Oklahoma or, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you're really just doing you're kind of you're exemplifying the principle that Brian Kaplan uh, said many years ago. There's a cheaper and more humane. We don't have to have, <laughs> you know, the open borders that would be really nice to have for, on my side versus absolute restriction. Like you could just say, well, they're not allowed to vote or they're not allowed to have welfare. You put a wall around the welfare state, as you put it. Yeah, that's right. I remember talking to uh, another libertarian philosopher about this, and she said, you know, I buy everything, but my view is that people from the Middle East are just really dangerous and really illiberal, and we can't allow them to move to the U.S. And I said, you know, I don't agree with that, but suppose for the sake of argument, you're right. Here's a pigeonhole solution. Uh, or sorry, is, is keyhole or, or pigeonhole? I'm suddenly blanking on that. But anyways, here's here's a quick solution. Fine, you're right. We're going to not allow anyone from the Middle East to move to the U.S., but we'll open borders to everybody else. You know, everyone from China, everyone from India. That's already four billion people. Like. What, why would you, if you're so worried about this one area, why would you restrict everybody? In the same way, if you're worried that uh, there's an Ebola outbreak in certain parts of Africa, you don't then cut off all trade and all uh, travel from every country. You just restrict that people from that one region. Right. Or people you who know? have been there recently. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you, again, it's like, think of if you have a particular issue, is there a cheaper, easier, simpler way of dealing with that issue rather than just, okay, well, no, no immigration. Oh, I really do worry about the attitude of people uh, more so than I am. I, I, it's weird. Like I actually, I mean, this is kind of a perverse form of virtue signaling, but I would, I, I just wish people were more open to this uh, in, in that their attitudes about other people across borders were far more open, even if for some reason they just had to reluctantly say, no, we shouldn't be that open. Like I just wish I, people's hearts don't seem to be open toward this kind of thing, which is, I think, the most depressing part of this is that people like adamantly argue against this. It's not like, yeah, uh, yeah no, I hear your argument, but I'm just really worried. <laughs> I, I agree. And it's it's puzzling, especially I mean, this is a, a Christian broadcast. And, you know, the I don't spend a lot of time talking about the Bible in my classes because, you know, we don't have I'm at a Catholic school, but we have people from all over. But the the one passage that I bring up is Luke 10, 29, you know, asking, like, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives a pretty clear answer. It's everybody. And then American Christians, uh, for some reason, tend to be like, no, no, I think I think he just meant Americans. Uh, <laughs> but he didn't. Well, that's he how said, they act. Yeah, he said it was everybody. But I think I don't want to make it about saying that people are hypocritical because I, you know, in my other life, I spent a lot of time working on what causes people's political attitudes. And in this case, I think I think there's something else that's being, that explains this. So economists think a certain way because you you get trained with a certain set of analytical tools. You learn to analyze things like how borders work and how trade works and what happens when people interact with each other. And you collect evidence about this. And you be as a result, you you know, an economist, you become pro-immigration and pro-free trade. But when you look at people other than economists, what you find is something like this: people who happen to live in high immigration areas are okay with immigration, and people who don't live in high immigration areas are against it. Even like say in England, you during the Brexit vote, you found the exact same thing. Uh, the people who lived in areas with very few immigrants, when they were asked by uh, the polling firm Ipsos Mori how many immigrants from the EU are in the UK, they overestimated by a factor between like three and five. They just wildly overestimated the number of immigrants. Uh, they thought they were swamping the country, even though they themselves don't actually see any immigrants. They're just like, well, I've never been to London, but I'm pretty sure like everyone there is an immigrant. <laughs> and then the people who are living in London, which actually has the immigrants, they're used to them. They see that they work okay. 
Uh, and then they're not so scared of them. You know, so I've had people say to me when I've given talks on this, like, well, what would you think if you lived in a neighborhood that was like 15% Muslim? Would you, would you like that? And I'm like, well, I do. I do live in a neighborhood that's 15% Muslim. <laughs> you know, like my, my younger son, he's like, what are your, who are your two best friends? He's like, oh, Muhammad and Jad. And they're both like from the Middle East. Oh, their parents are both from the Middle East. They're not from the Middle East. They're from here. But like, that's just normal. And so I'm not worried about it because I know what it's like to live yeah. there. It's the people that are living like in the middle of nowhere that where there aren't very many immigrants that are scared of immigrants. So I think it might not be so much a virtue thing as an exposure thing. People are afraid of the things they don't see and they're afraid of threats that they aren't that they haven't actually been exposed to. And even in the examples that you're giving there, like people are OK with immigrants because they check out with what their values are as opposed to. They just simply have a right to come here, whether I like it or not. And to some extent, it's like, well, I'll let you here. or I have a good attitude about you being here, not just because of empirical data, but because I feel OK with it because I've experienced it. And I know you're cool. Yeah. And there also I mean, there's a worry people have. And I think this is this is not just like a layperson's worry. There's a worry that uh, even people like Paul Collier and other intellectuals have about immigrants being illiberal and undermining home institutions but I think I think Voltaire's analysis of this is pretty good. So Voltaire, when he was writing his uh, letters on England, has this line about how when you go to the London Stock Exchange, you see that um, people from all different religions, not just different Christian sects who at the time were like murdering each other in Europe, but um, Muslims and Jews and others will like trade peacefully and then go their separate ways. And he says they only use the word infidel to refer to people who don't pay their debts. And then Voltaire goes on to say something like, his idea is that when there's basically only one religion historically, like one particular version of religion, then historically what you find is that the people in that religion now try to gain political power and oppress and just avoid all dissent. When there's maybe two basic religions or two sects of religion, then they're all on the cusp of winning. And so they have like massive civil war to kind of fight to be the one that dominates. But then when you get like 30 like 30 versions of Christianity or 30 or 30 versions of other religions as well, then you kind of know you can't win. And so for that reason, people become a lot more open and tolerant, you know? So like, I think in the U S like, even if we have a massive increase of people who would like are belong to different religions, which are often more connected to illiberal traditions, I think there's a liberalizing force to moving to that home country. And that's, that's actually what you see when you study um, immigrants from illiberal areas into the U.S. is that they become much more liberal. And here I'm using liberal in the kind of like libertarian sense of mm -hmm. open to freedom. Yeah. The places where you don't see that, by the way, and this is something that Boston and I talk about in the book, like France and some other places have a problem with this because there's a couple different ways of restricting like restricting trade, uh, including trade and labor. So you can restrict trade in, in say, uh, goods by just having a quota and saying people aren't allowed to, to send this good across the border. But you can also put a lot of uh, restrictions and regulations on the good that make it so no one will buy it because it's artificially expensive or it's just too hard. So what France ends up doing, because they have such high uh, labor regulations on their labor market, is that they make it so that many foreigners who move to France just effectively can't get a job. I mean, even a lot of like domestic-born, like French citizens of French nationality and for French ethnicity can't get jobs. So you have this really restrictive labor market, and then people move in and they get ghettoized into, say, a Muslim neighborhood. They know that they have no real stake in the country. They're never going to get a good job, and year after year, it's like that. And then you get rioting and, and a sort of resentment of the home country. Whereas in the U.S., we're pretty good at integrating in immigrants and like allowing them to start businesses and get real jobs. And then they just become like everybody else. 
So I want to move a little bit to free trade. And I think, you know, most libertarians are pretty free trade. They don't have as many objections to restrictions on free trade as they do to restrictions on, uh, you know, uh, geopolitical immigration. But man, this is still a thing. I mean, we're dealing with a president who imposes tariffs uh, and makes it a big deal. Uh, why this is I just I mean, Paul Krugman, of all people, knows about free trade. And, you know, <laughs> why do we still why are we still battling this? Do you do you have any like sense of like, why is this part of part of the argument for openness? Yeah, I think it's just we have to repeat the argument every year. It's it's counterintuitive and people uh, you know, as Boston, I say in the book, I think people have a zero sum view of human interaction. Their, their natural view that for whatever reason that we have, and maybe it's because of our, of our past or who knows, is that when people trade, the person who gets the money wins and the person who buys the product loses, that money is wealth, that, uh, um, you know, exports are good and imports are bad. Like mm-hmm. the thing that Adam Smith was arguing against in 1776, when he wrote the wealth of nations, He's criticizing an economic worldview called mercantilism. And we know from recent surveys, like the very surveys that Brian Kaplan uh, uses in his uh, uh, Myth of the Rational Voter book, we know that the typical American today is mercantilist. Mm-hmm. I, think we are, I think we are set up to be have a zero-sum view of human interaction, that they're, like, when two people interact, or especially when groups interact, there's going to be a winner and a loser. And so when we see trade, we think, well, it, it must be the person who gets the money wins and the person who just got all those crappy cars and televisions and stuff. They must be the loser. Mm. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And I think also, you know, you know, people tend to think we're, we're sort of set up to think about autarky like, well, everything should be made within my country. We shouldn't depend upon another country for food. We shouldn't depend upon another country for automobiles. If we do, that's really bad for us and we're insecure. I think I think those are just natural tendencies people have, and you have to kind of cure them with economic analysis. But and I don't think it's hard to do. I think if you take if you just take Econ 101, they'll explain to you pretty quickly yeah. why it's wrong. But most people haven't taken it, and so it that's that's our starting point. Yeah. Well, where does this come into like the issues of global justice? Because I mean, there's people on the left, um, even you know. Even Paul Krugman doesn't <laughs> kind of go far enough in my mind. But uh, why do they not typically consider free trade a solution to their concerns about global justice? They don't usually disparage it, but they often are pretty silent about it. I think uh, I think even the so zero sum process is a situation in which when you know I win at your expense, you win at my expense, and a positive sum process is a thing where we interact with each other, but we are both made better off through the interaction. Uh, I think people. The philosophers who write about global justice tend to make certain assumptions about what causes the, the wealth of nations. They tend to think, well, if some nations are rich and others are poor, it must be that the rich countries had better resources. Which, So their view is it was a zero-sum allocation of resources that predicts um, changes in wealth between countries. And so therefore, we need to cure poverty just by rearranging the stuff. Mm. They often tend to think that because there was a history of European colonialism – and the Europeans enslaved and murdered and raped and pillaged and stole lots of things from uh, other people, that that's probably what explains um, uh, European wealth and American wealth. And so that was, again, a zero-sum process. So it's and like then, undoing that. Yeah, we're giving back the stolen wealth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then they might think that, well, nevertheless, even if it wasn't that um, we're rich and they're poor and we can make them stop being poor by just giving them stuff. So they, they tend to just see it as a zero-sum kind of misallocation or a zero-sum process, which has to be fixed by another zero-sum process. And, and Boss and I in the book are arguing that 
Um, the actual things that have led to differences in wealth have been positive sum interactions in some places and the prohibition of positive sum interactions elsewhere, and that we need to find positive sum solutions to, to cure world poverty. And actually, just empirically, that these things will work much better than what they're doing. I mean, mm -hmm. even if Jeffrey Sachs is right about what giving $500 billion a year to the third world will do, and, and no one other than Jeffrey Sachs thinks that, but even if, even if he were right, like uh, free immigration has the, the potential of immigration to cure world poverty is, is orders of magnitude higher than that. Like the, the expected effects of it are much, much higher. Yeah. Uh, so I think they're just focusing on that. And maybe maybe it's because they just they're not really about trying to solve poverty. Maybe deep down they're just resentful of wealth or or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. What okay, so lastly, I do wanna bring up um one of the things that you talk about with respect to consumptive rights versus productive rights. In fact, I hadn't really, I don't know why, but I guess I hadn't really heard of the word productive rights. And so every time I read it, I had to keep reminding myself that you're not talking about reproductive rights. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I told somebody the word productive rights, they, they were like, they had to like calculate what you meant. So, uh, w what I was telling them. So, uh, what are, what are productive rights and why is that a key component of, uh, global justice? Yeah, good. So uh, you're right that you hadn't heard that. I think my my co-author, Boss Vandervoss, and that's his terminology. I think he was the one who put it in the field, and it hasn't spread that much yet. You know, um, so you know, I, I it hasn't hadn't reproduced. It. <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't heard of it either until we started writing the book, um, and it wasn't. I didn't even come up with it. Uh, so what he's saying is that when you when you look at the ways that people try to justify what counts as human rights, uh, there's philosophers sit down and ask the question, what determines whether something is a human right? They have various kinds of arguments that they give about, you know, autonomy or about need or about like, you know, what sorts of social conditions are necessary for people to lead good lives. And then they'll almost always take these arguments and then conclude, well, this means that you need to have stuff, stuff that you can consume. So therefore you have a right to all that stuff. And when he says in, in that chapter, I mean, really, you know, chapter seven, uh, where we talk about that, that's mostly him. I wrote a little bit of it, but it's mostly, I think, I think it wrote the critical stuff of others, but he wrote the positive stuff defending the position. Mm. What he says is if you take those very same arguments, you have an even better case for the idea that we need to be given, we, we are, deserve a right to trade. We deserve a right to own productive property. We deserve a right to be able to, um, make contracts with others that these kinds of economic rights to, engage in production are actually vital for liberating us from poverty, for making sure that our needs are met, for allowing us to lead authentic lives of our own. And in fact, they are the, not only are they necessary in that way, but they're also the preconditions of the consumption rights. If you want people to, if you think people have a right to bread, well, they're not going to eat unless you make sure most people have a right to make bread. Right. And that's going to like, and, and make bread in a market terms. I don't mean make bread in like Soviet terms. They weren't so good at getting bread there. <laughs> So we think like the like the rights of being a producer and to being economically active are actually more fundamental than the rights to consumption. And one of the reasons for that is because the rights of consumption depend upon the rights of production. That seems so obvious to me, but apparently it's not so obvious to our friends on the left. Yeah, yeah, I guess not. Uh, but I think many of them are – they really are just working with a Marxist worldview. Uh, I mean so we do a lot of things like saying – like in some of the last three chapters of the book, we're arguing against um, – mass uh, uh, giving from the first world to the third world. It's not that we're against charity. Boss and I both give to char certain charities. We give uh, not insignificant sums to charity too, but we don't think that, say, the Jeffrey Sachs proposal of giving $500 billion a year to the third world would cure world poverty. We think mm -hmm. that there are 
there are things in place that would make that either ineffective or in many cases backfire. Uh, but you know, when you ask a lot of philosophers about, well, why are some nations rich and others poor? They believe in these Marxist stories about imperialism and, uh, theft and so on. Exploitation. Uh, Exploitation. But again, the numbers don't work out. And I mean, I love doing this with students. One of the things I'll do in one of my classes is I'll read them some passages from Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, where he where Smith is criticizing empire building and criticizing imperialism and criticizing international theft. That's what the book was about. Mm -hmm. They don't know. And I ask, who said this? And they're like, oh, I don't know, that must be Marx. And it's like, this is Adam Smith. And so Smith makes this really good argument. Like, book four of The Wealth of Nations, he carefully catalogs how much stuff is England getting from the Americas and from its other colonies and other and other bits of its empire? What's the raw? What is the value of all these materials that it's effectively, let's just say, stealing all of it for the sake of argument? And then he's like, all right, good. And how much money do they spend on taxes to get that? And what he finds is that they're spending more money on the taxes to get the stuff than the stuff is actually worth. And so he says, that's really weird. So we're actually making England poorer by having an empire than not. And it gets worse than that. I won't even get into all the details. Yeah, but right. It gets worse even than that, but we're like England is losing money on its empire. He says rather than it being a gold mine, it's the illusion of a gold mine. And the reason it happens is because some people, the politically well-connected, benefit from imperialism. The king gets to feel like he's Yertle the Turtle and can see ever higher. Um, the people who make the bombs and the weapons and so on, they benefit. The people who run the monopoly trades to India, they benefit. The average tax, the average taxpayer is made worse off because they end up paying more in taxes and the, the value of the materials they get. They're hurt in other ways because of restrictions of trade. So he's like, imperialism is a losing, it's losing money. And it turns out Smith is right. We've done more recent studies. Like there's this nice book from the 80s called Mammon and Empire. There's some other more recent stuff. Looking at this stuff very carefully, you find that imperialism wasn't just bad for the conquered countries. It was bad for the conquering countries. It was a, it was an expense, not a gain. So that really, once you know that, this, is, this isn't like controversial economics. It's just a thing that you don't get taught in you know, in 12th grade history for some reason. Um, once you learn that, it really changes your view about how to think about the disparities of wealth around, around the world. It, yes, imperialism was evil. Yes, Europe did a lot wrong. But it's not the reason Europe is rich. It's actually, all things considered, Europe is poorer than it otherwise would have been. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're setting the record straight once and for all here because uh, we had a lot of people need to know this. And some of it is just being informed as opposed to like doing significant study. Like some of it is just like, wow, I didn't know that. And uh, you're right. We do have to repeat the argument every year uh, for these things. What is uh, what's next for you? Uh, I believe you have a book coming out like really soon. Another book. I mean, this book just came out in August, I think. And uh, now you got another book coming and I think you have like 67 more, right? Uh, I do have a few. I have, yeah, I have one coming out in May and then I have uh, five under contract, some of which are co-authored with others. So that's not as much work as it sounds like. Yeah. So I've got, I've got a couple of years of work laid out for me. The one that's coming out um, in in, I guess about a week. Yeah, it'll, it'll be about December 7th to 11th, somewhere there. It's called When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. So it's about the question of um, what are you allowed to do in response to um, government officials acting wrongly? Like not just acting wrongly in the sense of like breaking the rules and knowing it, but I mean when they violate your rights, when they, when they do things. Like if a police officer uses excessive force on you or on someone else, are you allowed to defend yourself? Uh, if you're given an order – um, and you work for the government and the order is an unjust order, do you have to follow it? Are you ever allowed to say, uh, sabotage government activity to prevent them from doing unjust things and so on? And the argument is that, uh, the very same rights that you have of self-defense against me, 
or that you have the right to defend me against others. Like the, the, the rights of self-defense and defense of others that you have against civilians, you also have against government agents, even when they act within the confines of the law and even when they act ex officio, that there's no difference between government and civilian injustice. So that's, that's the basic thesis. Yeah, it ends up being pretty radical for that reason. Uh, it's not a call for revolution. It's not a call for anarchy, but it does have some radical implications. How do you, how do you account for that in the book? Like, do you tell people not to have a revolution? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm part I of what can I imagine say. people reading that and being like, yeah, let's stand up. <laughs> well, I mean, part of it is like uh, thinking about what, what rights of self-defense are. If I, if, so my view is like if you see a police officer, um, say, using excessive force against a civilian, uh, you're allowed to defend that civilian. And that might mean in some, if you're armed, that might mean shooting the police officer. Right? And then you have to run away and try not to get caught. I'm not recommending that because they will come and kill you, but I think you have a right to do it. So uh, that said, like you don't defend that person in that moment by then going to the police office, like the whole police station and bombing and overthrowing the government. That's that's just declaring war. And that's, de- that's governed by different ethics, the ethics of war. Um, so it's about Self-defense is about stopping an immediate injustice from happening. It's not about like going and destroying other things or overthrowing a government. It's just a different unjust institutions. Yeah, that's a different activity, and it's it's governed by different rules in part because institutional change is so difficult that uh, there's a very strong tendency for revolution simply to make things worse. Mm. Yeah, so I think those. I just think they're different activities. you know, I'm going to stop this gang member from beating up this person right now is very different from I'm going to walk in here and shoot everyone who has the gang colors. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, the book we talked about today is called In Defense of Openness, Why Global Freedom is the Humane Solution to Global Poverty. Uh, we have just been talking with Jason Brennan. And uh, When All Else Fails is the upcoming book. So go and order both of them, of course. Uh, uh, Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.